Good morning. Our scripture text this morning is from Genesis chapter 40. I'll be reading the whole chapter. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody, and one night they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand, as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, over the last uh, couple of months, we've been tracking the life of Joseph. And it's a, it's a story about his ascendancy from the bottom of his family to the highest ranks of leadership in a foreign country. And if you were to plot this rise, it would hardly be a straight line, even though I'm drawing it as a straight line. It's actually not a straight line. Joseph's life graphs more like the historical performance of the S&P 500. I don't know if you've ever looked at that, but there's a clear increase over time 
But there's also some very pronounced pits, I guess we might say. And these represent bear markets. These are prolonged periods of decline uh, that make folks very nervous, makes people tempted to, to cut their losses and, and to sell off their stock. In Joseph's life, these periods are actual pits. You remember the first one, of course. It's when his brothers uh, back in Dothan threw him into a pit. And now, as uh, Joseph will say in verse 15 of the, uh, this chapter that we're in today, he's once again in a pit, a.k.a. an Egyptian prison. Now, part of the reason why Joseph's story is so compelling to us is that it's actually quite relatable. I'm, I don't expect that, that any of us will achieve you know, the vice presidency of a foreign country, but I do expect that all of us have or will have experienced pits, bear markets, uh, where the conditions are so challenging in your life uh, that we're tempted to just cut our losses and, and sell, spiritually speaking. Joseph's life is so relatable because our Christian lives typically chart out in a way that is eerily similar to his. It's almost as if this is the, the standard pattern of sanctification. It's almost as if the difficulties that are in our lives are divinely designed. This morning we have opportunity to learn from Joseph's pit experience in preparation for our own. And perhaps you're in the middle of such an experience today. Let me invite you to turn once again to Genesis chapter 40 in case your Bible accidentally closed on your laps. This chapter has so much to teach us about God's sovereignty, uh, His sovereignty in our suffering, uh, God's purposes in our pain. It has much to teach us about our right response when we are wronged. And I think it will be most profitable if we consider this chapter in Joseph's life from the perspective of James chapter 1, which says, Count it all joys, my, joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. I think that's a good, um, a good outline uh, to work through this passage. And so we'll seek to understand this text under three headings. If you're taking notes, these will be three main points that you can fill in some ideas under. Number one, we'll see faith's test. And then faith expressed. And then in the third place, faith's request. Faith's test, faith expressed, and faith's request. I didn't think about how much of a tongue twister that would be. Let's look first at faith's test. And let's just remind ourselves where we left Joseph last week. We left him naked 
and in a prison. You remember that after a time of faithful service to Potiphar, the captain of the guard, um, where Joseph oversaw all of the affairs of his household, so much did Potiphar trust Joseph. After all of that, Joseph is thrown into prison unceremoniously for, well, refusing an affair. Potiphar's wife had uh, propositioned him. He had righteously rejected her. And for his faithfulness, what did he get? He was rewarded with time in the clink. He uh, was put in there on trumped-up charges, falsely accused. Now, if the previous chapter describes a significant temptation in the life of Joseph, this chapter describes a significant trial. And when I say trial, understand I'm not talking about the day in court that people ought to be entitled to, because Joseph definitely didn't have that. This was completely unfair. When I say trial, I'm talking about the kind of difficult situation that tests one's mettle. The sort of fiery trial that, that proves and purifies a person's faith. And so let me ask you, have you ever had that kind of a trial? Are you, I wonder, even today in the midst of that kind of a trial? There's a few things that we need to know about these tests of faith things that I think um, come to the fore in these texts. First of all, we, ten, we need to know that trials are promised. Trials are promised. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange was happening to you. You know, this prison stint that Joseph has right now, it's not a setback it's not a glitch. It's not a detour. It was Joseph's predetermined pathway to power and to glory. And in the same way, your trial is not a strange interruption. It's not something that just kind of needs to be shaken off and moved on from as soon as possible so that you can, quote, get on with your life. No, it is your life. It is your life. It's, trials are a promised part of normal Christian living. Closely related to this is the truth that trials are preparatory. They are designed to prepare us for glory. Here's a, a helpful little exercise if you're tempted to not believe me. Think of any of the great heroes of the faith that you come across in the pages of Scripture, whether it's Abraham or Isaac or, J uh, or Jacob, Moses or David or Peter, were any of these great men thrust immediately into leadership? No, they all had periods of significant humbling, and they all experienced various trials that, that prepared them to be greatly used of the Lord. Consider the supreme example. Consider our Lord Jesus Christ. Consider the one of whom Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. 
And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's talking about Jesus. And if trials and suffering were promised and preparatory for Jesus Christ, should they not also be for all of God's children? For all of his sons and daughters? Don't think it strange when trials like this come into your life. Think it standard. However, don't let that truth detract you from a third one. Here's a third observation, and that is that trials are painful. I hope I'm not stating the obvious. I think it's important that I state the obvious. You know, the Andrew Lloyd Webber soundtrack that accompanies this chapter is all wrong. It's, it's far too light and upbeat to be a good match for what we read in chapter 4. Uh, the, the song goes, Go, 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 Joseph! You know, and, and the chorus enthusiastically urges the main character to, you know, just, Shalala, Joseph, you're doing fine. And that sure sounds a lot like the, the chipper and, and cheap counsel that Christians sometimes give to their brothers and sisters who are deeply hurting. I don't know if you've ever been on the receiving end of that kind of chipper counsel. It sounds an awful lot like our, our canned response. Some, something along the lines of, you know, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before, even though we are almost at our breaking point. Admit it. You picture Joseph as a sort of Ned Flanders character. Right? Just kind of like strolling through the prison with a spring in a step, whistling while he works. But, but that view is, I think, most sure, assuredly wrong. Trials are painful. And let's not minimize it in our minds or in our mouths. The psalmist paints, I think, a much more accurate picture in Psalm 105 where we read, The Lord had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. And this was no picnic. This test was painful at the time, and it wasn't pleasant. And we'll understand this more, um, I think, under our third point when we will see just how desperately Joseph sought to be released from this prison. Trials are, are painful. And in case you still aren't convinced, I would simply just ask you to honestly um, assess your own experience. Have you ever been falsely accused? Have you ever been treated unjustly? Have you ever had your well-earned reputation just destroyed by a malicious person overnight? Have you ever been displaced? Have you ever experienced loss? And while we're at it, let me just add another observation about faith's test. Trials are sometimes prolonged. 
This point is made through the, uh, the various ways that the, the passage of time is, to, is marked in uh, this chapter. Verse 1, for example, starts off by saying, sometime after this. And then look at verse 4. We encounter that same phrase again. They continued in custody for some time. And then look at verse 1 of the next chapter. After two whole years, you know, thanks to these kinds of notes and, and the narrator's um, notes about the age that, that Joseph was at various points, we can, we can do the math and we can discover that Joseph is going to be in this pit for something like 12 or 13 years. The prime of his life. His uh, most productive years, potentially. And he's languishing in a prison. Not only was this a painful trial, this was a prolonged trial. And we do ourselves and our brothers and sisters no favors if we downplay the pain, if we, quote, flanderize the chronic suffering that people are enduring. There's, there's one more important thing to note about trials before we move on to our second heading. And that is that they are presenced. I'm pretty sure that's not a word. Um, but it, it fits the parallelism, so hopefully you can forgive me for it. I mean, of course, that the Lord is present in the pit. Trials are presenced. I'm getting this from the end of chapter 39, which I understand is, is technically last week's material, but it, it's very important context for the present chapter. Chapter 39, verse 21, really is the key here. After the narrator paints the, the difficult picture of what's going on in the prison, it says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. And likewise, friends, in the midst of our trials, we can confidently sing, your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire, in the flood. You're faithful forever. You're perfect in love. You're sovereign over us. Now we might ask, what, what practical difference did it make for Joseph that the Lord was with him. What were the results of the Lord's presence in Joseph's life? Again, chapter 39 gave us a partial answer. Um, what it looked like was success, wild success. And whatever his hands found to do, Joseph prospered. It looked like, in this case, favor with the prison guards so that Joseph is getting all kinds of responsibility. In, in his incarceration, he's at like head over all of the other prisoners. But chapter 40 gives us a fuller and a deeper picture of what the Lord's presence meant for Joseph and what the Lord's presence meant in turn for his fellow prisoners because of the Lord's presence with Joseph. So let's turn to that now. Let's see in the second place Faith expressed. Faith expressed. 
In the, in the midst of his trial, Joseph's given a perfect opportunity to have his faith encouraged and to express his faith. Under this point, I want you to note first Joseph's sensitivity. Joseph's sensitivity. We've already seen that Joseph's own trial is, is rather pronounced and it's painful and it's prolonged. So we might forgive him if he was kind of consumed with himself. This is what we all tend to do in pain. We, we kind of turn inward and we become so focused on ourselves that we become oblivious to all of the needs that are around us and the pain of other people. But not so with Joseph. In due course, some, some other servants are incarcerated. You know, you've got your butler and your baker. And I know what you're probably thinking. What about the candlestick maker? Well, that's none of your beeswax. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a different story. Okay? This story features two of Pharaoh's most trusted servants. The cupbearer, the, the guy that's, that's in charge of uh, choosing and checking and serving Pharaoh his wine. Very important job. And the baker, who is in charge of making and serving Pharaoh his bread and probably other kinds of food. But we're told that unlike Joseph, these two had sinned against their master. Perhaps conspiring together, they, they'd committed some kind of unspecified offense for which they're thrown into prison. And Joseph, given his responsibilities in that prison, he served these two inmates, and it's clear that he was concerned for them. This is especially clear that one night that both of them dreamed dreams, and at breakfast the next morning, they were visibly troubled. They were upset from the things that they had dreamed. And Joseph's sensitivity is seen in verses 6 and 7. It's seen in the fact that he noticed their countenance and he asked them, what's wrong? What, why are your faces downcast today? And, and I want you to see that this leads to a wonderful opportunity for Joseph to express his faith. And I'm convinced, I hope you don't think I'm, I'm stretching the point too much here, but I, I'm convinced that if we walked in the world with our head up rather than our heads down, and if we had an outward focus rather than an exclusively inward one, if we were sensitive to the pain and to the distress of other people, then it seems to me we would have daily opportunities to express our faith. And this is precisely what Joseph does. It turns out that they're distressed because they, each of them have had these, this baffling dream. But because they're in prison, they don't have access to all of you know, the Egyptian professional dream interpreters. This, especially in Egypt at this time, this was a whole industry. This was a whole bunch of people who were in touch with the, I don't know how to describe it, the metaverse. 
maybe is a good way to describe it. And they could, they could tell you what your dreams revealed about your future. Or at least they purported to. They, they made all kinds of money off of this. And, and Pharaoh would have kept many of these um, magicians, many of these interpreters uh, in his court. But as I say, in prison, uh, the butler and the baker don't have access to any of these people who can interpret dreams, or so they thought. Joseph responds, look at verse 8, Do not interpretations belong to God? And I don't want you to let the simplicity of his response mislead you. Okay, this is a powerful expression of his faith. For starters, he's responding with a rhetorical question, uh, which I know that you know what that is. Okay, it's more of a strong statement than it is an actual question. The, these... He's making a very strong statement about who his God is, who the God is. And I, want, I do want you to note that at the same time, these Egyptians would not have thought this to be a rhetorical question. They, they would say, well, actually, interpretations belong to the gods, you know, small g and plural. They, they had a concept for for all sorts of deities and, and they would seek access to, 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 re, to get some sort of meaning from their dreams from these small g gods. And they could, they could agree with that, but big g god, singular, that, that interpretations belong to him, that was not obvious to them. That's putting it very mildly. This would be a very strong statement in their context. But here is Joseph proclaiming to them the one true and living God who is sovereign over all. And to this God, this one God, this true God, belongs the interpretation of dreams. God alone can provide the interpretation of dreams because He is the one who who sends the dreams in the first place, if I could put it that way. And you might say that the Lord is the dream weaver. Okay? He's, he's the, the reason that these dreams can accurately predict the future is because this God is sovereign over history. This is the God who has written the detailed script for the unfolding of all events. Not just in your life, but in the whole world. And behind the interpretation of dreams is a God who is totally sovereign over everything. And what's more, Joseph is a servant of this Most High God. And so Joseph says, tell me. Let me hear them. As I say, this is a powerful proclamation of Joseph's faith. And it must have been very compelling to the um, cupbearer and the baker because they share their dreams with him. The cupbearer went first. He had he dreamed about a vine that had three branches which uh, budded and blossomed and brought forth grapes, grapes which he squeezed 
into a cup, and he gave that cup to Pharaoh. That's easy, says Joseph. The three, that stands for three days, after which Pharaoh will lift up your head. And that's an expression that means he's going... It's similar to when you have uh, a sad little six-year-old in your house and he's got his bottom lip out and he maybe he's done something wrong and his head is hanging and then you as a dad lift up his head. You're restoring him. And this is what the expression means in that context. This is what it means for the cupbearer that Pharaoh is going to lift up his head and restore him to his former position. Now that's a very favorable interpretation. And I'm, I'm sure it encouraged the, the next guy, the baker, to share his dream as well. Maybe, maybe there's going to be good news for him too. So he shares his. In, in his dream, he's carrying three baskets on his head kind of stacked on each other, and each of them are full of cakes and, and biscuits and bread and pastries. You know, in, incidentally, this is exactly what I dream about every night as well. <laughs> but in the, in the baker's dream, birds were pecking at the pastries in the uppermost basket. What could it mean? Well, I'm sure Joseph was sad to break it to the guy, but his fate would come in three days as well. And it wasn't going to be a favorable outcome. Pharaoh is not going to lift up his head. You know, when, when Joseph says, he's going to lift up your head, maybe the baker is like, oh, yeah. And Joseph's like, you didn't let me finish. He's going to lift up your head from you which means it's going to be for the baker. He, he's going to be impaled, and the birds of the air are going to peck at his corpse as if it were a croissant. By the way, these, these two men and their dreams give us uh, another glimpse at the sovereignty of God. We, because we wonder, well, why the difference? Why, why are there two different outcomes here, both in the opposite directions? Because we know from the text that both of these men are guilty sinners. Both of these men have committed a grave offense. Both of these guys are deserving of wrath. So why is one spared while the other is punished? Why is one, um, you might say, a vessel of wrath? and the other a vessel of mercy. Obviously, these outcomes don't depend on the cupbearer or the baker. Rather, these outcomes must depend entirely on God, who has mercy. It depends on an absolutely sovereign God who has mercy on whom he has mercy and has compassion on whom he has compassion. And sure enough, three days later, it just so happened that Pharaoh had a birthday and therefore he had a great big party, a lot of drinking, I'm sure. And a lot of times it was customary for this sort of a party to do some favors. Um, think Herod and, and John the Baptist. 
Okay? It was customary sometimes for, for kings on this special occasion to grant amnesty or to do some beheading. Again, think Herod and John the Baptist. And this is exactly what Pharaoh did. He, he lifted up the head of the cupbearer, which is to say he restored him to his former position, and he lifted the head off of the baker that very day. And what does that demonstrate? It demonstrates that every word of the Lord proves true. Now, just think about what a powerful statement about God this chain of events could have been for the cupbearer if he was to connect the dots, if he was to think deeply about this. There's no real indication from the text that he does, but I also want you to think about how powerful this series of events would be for Joseph. Not only was his faith expressed, his faith was most certainly encouraged when he saw events unfold exactly according to the interpretation. And don't forget, Joseph has dreamed dreams himself. There's two of those dreams as well that he dreamed back in the day. And both of them are foretelling a positive outcome. Both of them are indicating a future, a future of, of glory that was in store for him as a servant of the Lord. How encouraging it must have been for Joseph in the pit to know that he can stand on every promise of God's word. Three days later, when, when Joseph heard the news about the cupbearer and the baker, I'm sure that must have bolstered his faith. I'm sure, he, I'm sure he gave renewed expression to his faith. Maybe he prayed something like this, Lord, I, I believe that you will deliver me from this pit. I believe you're going to fulfill in me every promise that you've ever made. Dream weaver, I believe you can get me through the night. Maybe his prayers took something of that shape. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for you. In every single one of your trials, there's going to be ample opportunity for you to not just express your faith, but for your faith also to be greatly encouraged and extended as you experience the faithfulness and the sovereignty of God, the truth of his word and the surety of his promises. With Peter, I'm sure that after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. I guess what I'm trying to say is, I believe we can reach the morning light. And so there's lots of reasons for you to be encouraged. Let's look uh, thirdly and finally and quickly at faith's request. Faith's request. And here, I just want to circle back to the request that the cupbearer, or that Joseph makes to the cupbearer, after he interprets his dream and gives him good news about his restoration. We see this in verse 14 where Joseph says, Only remember me 
Remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness of mentioning me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. I think some of you may need to hear this, and so let me just say it. It is not sinful for you to seek relief from your trials. It's not sinful to seek relief from your trials. We, we've said that, yes, trials are par for the course and, and painful and sometimes prolonged, but that doesn't mean, that certainly doesn't imply that we need to be gluttons for punishment. Contrary to popular, popular belief, the height of spirituality is not stoicism, or masochism. And this is one of the many areas in which the Psalter is so helpful because we can, we can hear the psalmist's cries for, for mercy. We can hear fervent pleas for deliverance. People are pursued, people who are in prison or in a pit, they call out to the Lord for deliverance. And neither do these earnest pleas fall on deaf ears, but they can testify that the Lord heard them and delivered them and pulled them out of the miry pit and set their feet upon a rock. So, so consider this permission to persist in prayer and in pleading, both for yourself and for others who you know to be suffering, pleading for deliverance. That's good and right and proper. And the Lord, I think, delights in it. And he, and he hears and answers. I'm, I'm especially struck by the two words that remain. Once you boil all of Joseph's request all the way down, these two words remain, remember me. Remember me. And in a nutshell, it seems to me, this is faith's request. If, if faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, then, then Joseph asking this before the three days is up, you know, before it is well, it is actually well with the cupbearer, that's another strong expression of Joseph's faith. Joseph's, Joseph is only able to make this request on the basis of faith, on the basis of, of what he knows to be true, even though it, it doesn't immediately appear that it's the case. And when you hear the, those words, remember me, maybe your mind goes, as mine does, to a, a similar request that was made by one of the thieves that was crucified alongside of Jesus. That one said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that, that is the essence of faith. The, the only thing that, that you can see with the eyes of flesh is that this Jesus is, is a goner. But the eyes of faith could see that truly this one was the, the Son of God who stands to inherit a kingdom a kingdom of glory. And when that time comes, Lord, as it indeed will come, remember me. Remember me. And some of you may be here today in a, 
in a far deeper pit than the kind that a lovingly, heavenly father provides for the testing of his children and the testing of their faith. You, you might be in the dungeon of your sin. You might be today, presently, under the wrath of a holy and righteous God. And I just want to urge you, on the basis of the blood that Jesus shed for sinners like you and me, cry out to him. Pray, get me out of this house. Say, Lord, remember me. And I can say to you confidently, he will hear you. He will save you. So today, if the Spirit is, is speaking and calling you, do not harden your heart. Repent of your sins and, and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn in faith to Him. And if you want to know how, how to do that, um, how, how to pray, if you want to have someone to pray with you, and I would just encourage you to don't go home until you come up to the front pew after the service and there will be folks here that would love to help you and they'd love to point you to the Savior. Be saved today. Now this chapter closes with a sad note. A note that the cupbearer did not remember Joseph when everything started going well for him. He forgot. And it'll be another couple of years before his memory is jogged. But the Lord has not forgotten Joseph. Indeed, the Lord is with Joseph. And everything is actually going exactly according to his perfect plan. And if you don't believe me, just come back next week and I'll, I'll be excited to show you that. But the same thing is true with you. you. You may be in the pit and it is, I'm sure, painful. And I'm also confident that it is profitable because the Lord is present. The Lord is actively fulfilling all of his promises to you. The Lord is preparing you for glory. And since that's the case, let us yield to the testing of our faith. Let's, let's give a, let us give explicit expression to our faith. May the praises of the Lord be ever upon our lips. And let's be today encouraged in our faith for the glory of Christ. Amen. Amen.